Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's it going? Ah, I'm doing great. You want to uh, address some feedback? Yeah, we got a few in the queue. Our first email comes in from Ricky. Ricky writes in and says, Greetings, Noah and Steve. The recent discussions about the show audio setup and board failures reminded me of a success story that I wanted to share as I thought it might help and inspire others. My wife is a middle school choir teacher, which has made me her go-to front of house tech guy. Her choir has access to a Yamaha TF1 mixer. Yamaha designed the series to be super simple to operate under untrained volunteers. I scoured the internet to find out whether the USB bus was class compliant or close enough to work in Linux so that I could record the performances, but I found absolutely nothing. I want to stop right there and I want, I want to point something out. When you're soldiering on through your Linux journey and you come across something and you go to the Googs and attempt, or the DuckDuckGo, and attempt to find out if something's going to work, in the same way that when you're working inside of a terminal and we get this no news is good news, like if it just returns your you return your command prompt, chances are it probably worked just fine. It's when something spits out that you know you potentially have a problem. Same thing is true when you're doing internet searches to troubleshoot. No news is good news. Oftentimes, if you don't find anything on the internet, if you find a whole bunch of Reddit posts and Google things and people asking, how do I get this to work? That's your first sign that like, mm, you're in for a struggle. Now, you can go read through and find out if the struggle has fruit at the end of it. But when you don't find anything, oftentimes that's not a bad thing. Oftentimes that can be a good thing. So he continues on. He found absolutely nothing. My wife's end of school year performance was coming up and I decided I would just give it a try with Fedora 38 with Pipewire. So I plugged the USB cable into the audio system and set the profile to pro audio as well as all 34 inputs and outputs were available. All those inputs were overkill, but the board allowed me to send two versions of each mic to the computer. One essentially a ROM mic and the other a feed that I've selected as post effects. But prior to the main mix, my knowledge may vary, but I had resounding excess with Pipewire and Fedora 38, Audacity and Ardour with the TF1 Mixer. Thanks for the both of you and all of your contributions to support in the Linux open source communities, Ricky. Hey, really appreciate that. I, I, would, I would echo that a lot of these manufacturers are getting hip to the idea that, not e that if they make it work class compliant, it will just work on the Windows and on the Macs and on the Linuxes. It works everywhere. So it's in their best interest to kind of keep things to a standard, but uh, happy to see that. Steve, anything to add to uh, Ricky's feedback? No, it's just nice to have uh, a list of things that would be compatible. Like back in the day, um, we used to go scouring the internet for was this piece of hardware uh, easily usable mm. under Linux, right? Mm -hmm. Back in the day when you had like NDIS wrapper and all those kind of fun tools that you had to work around. Um, I often went hunting for compatibility lists and largely that's gone into the dustbins of history, I think, but there's still some things like we were working, you and I were working with your dad's audio mm -hmm. system and you know, that it still bites you from time to time. There are just some, some interfaces that were, were targeted at specific audiences that, um, is not a part of our audience. And so it's nice to know when things do cross over. Adam writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks so much for answering my questions about re remote desktop software for KDE last week. Of all the choices that you list, I'm probably going to look into Rust Desk. Simple, it sounds great, but it has Wayland support, but the cost is a bit much for me right now. Also, after a bit of Googling, it sounds like Rust Desk developers have started implementing Wayland support, even though it's very early and limited right now. I'm happy to remain on X for now anyway. Just a heads up for other listeners who want to try any decks. Unfortunately, it looks like it's no longer available via Flatpak. 
I'm using an immutable OS, Fedora Kenanite, and so it's a no-go for me as of right now. Hopefully, Katie will find a way to build remote desktop support that works with Wayland as GNOME has done, though I'm unsure of the possibilities to log in through GDM through the remote desktop option. Thanks again, Adam. Any any uh, any follow-up to Adam? So the AnyDesk Flatpak apparently was not produced by or even affiliated with the AnyDesk um, project, and so I did look into that. The maintainer has abandoned the flat pack. The company still releases a TarGZ file that just has the AnyDesk binary in it. And so as long as your system has the requisite libraries involved, you can just run the TarGZ and fire it up that way. Uh, it, it's a shame. I, I thought maybe I'd take a look to see about maintaining this, but I'll continue using it because I've already installed it via flat pack. So um, until... I run into some sort of breaking issue. I'm waiting for my preferred was actually Rust Desk, but um, a bunch of the immutable operating systems that I have been playing around with are using Wayland. And at least at the last time that I tried it, Wayland was no go. So really looking forward to seeing the Rust Desk people pull Wayland support further forward. Ian writes it and says, my main laptop is a Lenovo X230 running Ubuntu 2204. I have a mini desktop, a Zotac ZBox IB82, also running Ubuntu 22.04. The goal, to run the ID82 headless, but access it via GNOME remote desktop from the X230 laptop so that I can use the graphical desktop interface via Remina to use SoundJuicer. I'd like to copy my CD collection and play tracks back using Rhythmbox. The story so far, with the monitor detached to the IB2, I've set up sharing via remote desktop, switching on remote desktop and remote close. Anyway, he goes through all of the things that he's tried, and eventually he gets down to this idea of he's creating a, like a dummy monitor so that he has something to output and all the rest of it. So I guess I want to kind of reset the, the, the paradigm. We'll kind of start from scratch here a little bit, Steve. If you woke up in Ian's shoes... And I said, I have this computer down here and I want to remotely access that machine. I want to feel like I'm sitting at the computer and have access to as if I was controlling it remotely. What would you do? I think so. Just for clarity for the listeners, what's happening is uh, when you try to connect to this device and it doesn't have a monitor um, plugged into it, into the physical port, it's kicking back a can't open display error of some sort, mm. which is not uncommon. So they're, um, the first thing that people usually go to in the situation is getting like a DVI or an HDMI kind of like dummy display adapter. It gives you something to plug into so that it thinks there's something on the other end. Apparently, this is not working for this particular listener. Um, in that event, I personally have deployed PyKVM. So yeah, um, I... I did the DIY thing. So lots of people are saying, well, you can't buy the, the Pi KVM. I started using this project back when it was in its like infancy, infancy, where the the guides to get it working were like, here's a bunch of like suggestions on how you should splice your cables together to get everything to work. And so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty handy with the small electronics and stuff like that. So I went through and made my own cables from some high quality USB-C cables. And like I split them out and soldered them and, did all of the things. Um, it's much easier nowadays, especially because you can just, well, in theory, you could just buy them, notwithstanding the fact that uh, pies are really, really shallow. Um, so you can actually yeah. buy them. So what, what I've done is I went through, I'm lazy. I, so like you, I could make the cables, but I'm lazy. And so I didn't. And what I did was I went on eBay to see if somebody had just kind of assembled it for me. Oftentimes geeks will do that. They'll charge you a little bit of a fee, but then they'll put it all together for you. And I didn't find that per se. But what I did find is our good friends over across the pond in China assembled what they call the Bly KVM, B-L-I KVM. And if you go on eBay and look at the Bly KVM, it's a $300 unit. And essentially what they've done is they've taken the Raspberry Pi, they've placed it inside of the box, they make you all of the cables that you need, the USB connection cable, the thing to interface with all of the ATX power circuits so that you can remotely power on and power off the computer, all the rest of that. And then effectively you just feed it an HDMI signal, which I'm fairly certain your ThinkPad's going to have, as well as a USB interface so that you can control it. Now the advantage of doing it this way, uh, Ian, is it's going to show up in a web browser for you. So 
you you don't need any client software. And oh, by the way, if you blow away and reset up your laptop, you don't have to do anything to reset up the server portion of it because that's all contained on the Bly KVM or on the on the Pi KVM if you build it yourself. So absolutely a, a, a decent way to go and and an, honestly a more scalable solution. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of July 16th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Slackware, the oldest and longest continuously running Linux distribution, has turned 30. Linux Mint 21.2 Victoria is now available. Linux 6.3 has reached its end of life. Intel Arc GPUs get another bump in performance with a recent 10% speed up from driver updates. The Information Systems Authority of the Government of Estonia and the Open Voice Network, an open source association of the Linux Foundation, have announced an agreement to test and demonstrate interoperability of voice assistance across different technological platforms, a first for the voice industry. The Defense Intelligence Agency has announced that it will be taking steps to address how open source technology should be managed and how to train the intelligence community personnel for its use. In hardware news, BeagleBone has released a new RISC-V single-board computer. And Analog Lamb announces a RISC-V development board that starts at just $1.99. And a group has recently posted open-source designs for the Antikythera mechanism. In security news, Red Mention, an APT group active in the Middle East and Asia, continuously enhances the BPF door backdoor, utilizing the Berkeley packet filter to evade Linux and Solaris OS firewalls. A fake proof of concept for a Linux kernel vulnerability on GitHub actually exposes researchers to malware. A new fileless malware named PyLoose has been targeting cloud workloads to hijack their computational resources for Monero cryptocurrency mining. And since at least May 2021, a stealthy Linux malware called AV Recon was used to inject over 7,000 Linux-based small office home office routers and to add them to a botnet designed to steal bandwidth and provide a hidden residential proxy service. And GhostScript, an open-source interpreter for the PostScript language and PDF files widely used in Linux, has been found vulnerable to a critical severity remote code execution flaw. And lastly, in AI news, Meta has announced that they are going to release an open-source commercial AI model to compete with OpenAI and Google. I've now had almost three full weeks on Beeper, and the last week they've released the, the, the newest update supposedly fixes a lot of the issues that people have had with the Facebook bridge and the Instagram bridge. And indeed I can report that a week later after that update, nothing, it, they haven't disconnected at all. It's been great. The other thing that I wanted to give these guys a plug for their customer support is flipping fantastic. Like above and beyond what I would have ever expected if I paid for an app, let alone one that I'm using for free. So when you report a problem in the app, which is very easy to do, by the way. Tap on the thing, say, hey, here's a problem I'm having, here's a question I have. First, it'll try and answer your question with AI. If that doesn't work, it fills out basically what the equivalent of a bug report and dumps it in there. Well, here's the great thing. It does it in the chat. So it's just a chat with Beeper help. And so this past week, they sent me a thing and said, hey, how are you liking Beeper? Is there anything that we can do to help you? They also did that when I got when I signed up right away, right? They asked, hey, is there anything we can do to help you get anything set up? Do you not understand anything? Do we can help in any way? Didn't need them for that, but I did give them my feedback so far and said, here's the things I like. Here's the things I think that could be improvement. Here's what I wish you would do. Really what it amounted to was, I wish you'd let me deliver my messages to my own home server and not require me to, to stay on yours. I'd like to just pay you for the bridging. But the white glove setup and support that Beeper is offering to their customers is just awesome. And so to get a message from a person and then when I send it, somebody reads it and then responds to me, I think is just really great. So I think they're doing a really good job from that standpoint. I also, I continue to evaluate the product on this idea of an access to a wider network of people. So I have people that are on Facebook. I have people that are on Twitter. I have people that are on Instagram. I have people that are on WhatsApp. I have people that are on Signal. I have people that are on Telegram. And all of the, and LinkedIn, all of these people, LinkedIn, I especially started to overlook because I haven't logged into it in 10 years. And turns out people wish me happy birthday, all sorts of things. So I want to, maintain relationships with some of these people. Some of these people are only on certain platforms. 
and having access to that has been really cool. But I'll tell you my biggest, like, huh, wouldn't have saw that coming. iMessage, the bridge between Matrix and iMessage, the way that Beeper is doing it is flawless. Essentially, so far as I understand it, they are running Macs inside of a data center and logging you in, and that's how it's puppeting your iMessage. I want to be clear here. You don't need an iPhone. You don't need an iPad. I don't have any Apple devices, and you don't need one to do this. You just go create a free account at uh, at apple.com. But doing that and then setting up the bridge means you instantly have access to every human being with an iPhone, which in the United States is well over half the people here. And so what I'm finding is I go to create a group chat or I go to do this thing, and my protocol has been, I'm going to try and hit them on Matrix. Oh, I can't. Okay, fall back to SMS. And again, good gym, SMS, jmp.chat we covered it in an earlier episode it's flawless works great no problems with that at all but it's now it's a second thing right now i've got two things that i'm maintaining so as i'm able to slide people over to matrix it's like okay that's that's in the win category there's a check mark for the win well with beeper everybody on facebook just got a check mark everybody on telegram signal was all right right so iMessage. I wouldn't have even thought, in fact, I didn't have an iCloud account that I was going to use, but I thought in the interest of testing all the bridges, I got all the rest of them set up, I may as well set up iCloud too. It's amazing to me how many people, they're not on these platforms, but they have an iPhone. And what's interesting about it, and kind of my aha moment was, how in the world does Apple, the most closed ecosystem under the planet, offer a more direct way or an API or a, a connection interface into iMessage before Android or basically any anyone else. How is that? Like their default messenger is accessible over IP and Android does not. I know Google has their own texting plus thing that they're working on, but I played with it a little bit. I'm not impressed to say the least. But if you haven't signed up for Beeper, beeper.com, highly recommend you do so. If It is Matrix for normal people. So if you're a nerd, you might just sign up for an Element account, or if you really want to go nerdy, set up your own home server. But if you're just looking, you just want to be able to talk to people and you want to just maintain human connections, highly recommend you check out Beeper because it's a way for you to be able to do that. Element X was also released this week. So this is of interest because Element X introduces what they call sliding sync. So if you've ever opened up Telegram and it's super fast or Signal, it's super fast, and then you open up Element and you go, wow, I didn't open it for a few days and now it takes a long time for all my messages to catch up. That is what sliding sync aims to, to fix. So what they do is they, it requires a server now that supports L, or, uh, a sliding sync. So you have to either have a server that is supported or you be using matrix.org. And the first time that you sign in, obviously it's going to be the same as in, and so is Telegram and all the rest of them because it's downloading that initial me message history. But then from then on, when you open the app, as long as your server supports it, it's going to be lickety split and just instantly drop to where your messages are. So it's available in the Apple App Store. It's also available as an APK on Android. And so if you haven't uh, tried Element X, I highly recommend you do so. The other thing that they've done here is they've introduced pseudo IDs. So right now, when a user sends a message, it's coming from that user. So the idea is eventually to have account portability, the idea that I can be this this person and I can move my account or my identity to, and I can store it on any home server I like. So I start on matrix.org, I decide it's not for me, I spin it off on my home server, then I go work for a place and I park it over there, I can do whatever you want. In order to do that, they have to separate your matrix ID from who's actually sending the message. So what they're going to is a per room per user ID as the sender. So that, that that's a key that's generated per user per room. And that becomes this, this what they're calling it as a pseudo ID. That becomes the ID that you use to send your messages. And so it's now there's an obfuscation layer in between your matrix ID and this and the sender ID. And so this is kind of the precursor to account portability. But just kind of watching that land and kind of watch the go into the room thing and, and look at it, it's it pretty cool. And the other thing in, in the matrix world that I wanted to give some attention to is Golmux. So if I had one complaint about my my transition into matrix is it's that as much as I want to like Electron apps, as much as I tell myself that Electron apps are the thing that allows Linux to succeed because big name companies can publish to it and it's all the places and all the things, I just struggle. Every time I open an Electron app, it feels slow, it feels laggy, it has weird behavior because really it's just a Chrome wrap thing. And so I try to resize the window and it doesn't resize right. And I just, it's just not great. And the other part of it is I keep trying all of these other messengers some of them I can't get signed in or I, like I have to sign in every time. Other ones, it doesn't show me message history or encryption. Just, there's all sorts of little issues with, with all of them. None of them are really great. And so I always wind back up on Element. Well, 
Then GoMux came into my life. So GoMux is a command line based, so it's a terminal based client, uh, matrix line. And it's actually written by the guy that runs T2Bot, if you've ever used any of their bridging. He also has, because he's developed most of the bridges, also works for EMS doing the, uh, or not EMS, excuse me, he works for Beeper. And so he's one of the guys that have, that are designing a service based on bridging to all of these services. It was clear to me within about 30 seconds of using this app that he must live in this all day long because all of the stuff that you use day to day is dialed into a T and all of the like fancy stuff that, you know, is kind of nice, but it's not something you rely on doesn't exist at all. So GoMux, it, the thing that I like about it more than anything else, and I wouldn't have even known that I liked it until I tried it is it, there's no notifications. It doesn't ding anything. It doesn't, I think they're working on getting a terminal bill, but by default, it doesn't do anything. It just turns the chat room from normal text to bold. And so I just know there's traffic in that room. And what was absolutely fantastic about that, especially as I'm doing my, especially as I do critical thought in the morning, I'm sitting in a radio studio for three hours a day. I don't want to be completely deaf to the rest of the world, but mostly I want to be deaf because I'm trying to concentrate on doing a radio show. And having GoMux up to where I can just glance over at it and go, oh, there's traffic there. I'll get to that in a little bit. Oh, there's traffic there. That's my wife. I want to find it right now. Like, what does she need or what's going on? Being able to differentiate that has been absolutely fantastic. The other thing is, that, and this happens to me, I'd say, 100 times a day. I have somebody I want to message or I have some some traffic I want to send. I don't want to scroll through the root, the, the space that I created and then the subspace and then the room and then scroll to the bottom and then it, I don't want to do any of that. So GoMux, you press control K, you start typing the name of the room. Press enter, it drops you right into the room, you type your message. You want to open or close the room so you can see them or you want to just have the chat full screen, slash toggle rooms and it tab complete works. So really slash TO space RO enter. And it allows you to be so much more efficient. Now, if you're a person that tiling window managers drive you nuts, if you're a person that doesn't like spending any time in the command line and command lines intimidate you, GoMux is not for you. But if you're a person that your life is lived inside of one terminal window and now all of your message traffic can show up at another terminal window and oh, by the way, the client's a very well-designed client for working inside of a terminal, it is spectacular. And the other thing is, a lot of the things like to accept an invite or to reject, you know, you're typing slash accept. What I'm finding is those commands are just matrix commands. So you can run them in element or any other matrix client and they work just fine because you're just talking directly to the back end, which is comical to me because you can tell it's written by nerds and it's fantastic and I love it. So GoMux, we'll have links for you in the show notes. Check it out. It's really cool. So Alma in the news this past week for a change in focus. So Alma was previously tracking Rel, as was Rocky, and they made an announcement this week that they're going to change tracks. And essentially what they're doing is they're dropping the focus of a bug for bug compatibility with Rel. And instead, they're going to track CentOS stream and adhere to what they're calling an ABI compatibility. So the idea being that so the software will run, it'll be a package for package thing. Steve, can you help me understand fully what ABI compatibility means? I'll give it a shot. So uh, this is a little outside of my where I work in the day to day, but essentially, so ABI is an application binary interface. And what this means is for people that are familiar with APIs, which is uh, a way to talk to another program um, via some le level of command, okay? And ABI, what this is, is when you have, so everybody's familiar with the idea that applications don't stand on their own. There's a bunch of libraries in behind them that enable them to do their work, right? So FFmpeg, for example, relies on some sort of video driver outside of FFmpeg itself. That, so it's got that library. ABI compatibility says that when I upgrade my packages, I don't need to recompile or relink the libraries because this interface that I, the way that I talk with this library remains consistent. And so the reason why that is important is because as a user of Alma, you want to make sure that, um, 
your applications are going to continue to to behave properly. So, for example, um, maybe big um, ISV is not going to release their software for Alma Linux specifically, but rather they're going to certify on RHEL 9.3 or, you know, pick a version, right? If Alma is able to maintain ABI compatibility, what that means is they will be able to say, if it runs on RHEL, it'll run on Alma. And that's, that's really an important uh, milestone for them. So while they won't be exactly a clone, they are going to be working in an upstream kind of model where both Red Hat and now Alma are going to be looking at the CentOS stream code and attempting to make uh, improvements here. And this could be a benefit for Alma for a few reasons. While they can't claim bug for bug compatibility, it does give them some level of flexibility to be able to uh, patch bugs that they think are necessary because so, ABI compatibility doesn't mean that the applications are, are exactly the same. What it means is that there is no breakage between this version of the library and the next one. So I'm a potential customer or I'm a potential Linux user. Why do I choose Alma over CentOS stream? So there's a few reasons. Okay. So if you are small, medium business, if the, the selling point might be a little smaller. But when you are a, a larger organization that ends up having people in the organization that care about, I have internally certified version, you know, Alma version 9.2.1 or whatever it is, right? Pick a release version. We've tested everything against that and that's what we're going to go with. CentOS stream, um, we're trying not to say the word rolling, but it, it is a more up-to-date version of things. And so when you are a company that says, I have tested this version of my software with this version of the operating system at these libraries, you can kind of deploy them together. When you have something like Stream, it's a little bit more murky because Stream doesn't really cut releases. Like a RHEL release or an Alma release is cut and, you know, they they ship that version of whatever they say together. So there's, there's some aspect of that. Uh, on top of the fact that you might feel that your contributions are more well-received in the smaller base, like mm. CentOS mm -hmm. Stream is still maintained by Red Hat in large part, even though we accept community contributions and stuff like that, whereas Alma is this is the community that's, that's You know what? You're onto something there. Nobody's paying Red Hat for support on CentOS Stream. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so there is, there is some opportunity here for Alma for a few things. Like, like I said, they have the ability to potentially fix things that maybe um, Red Hat engineers are deployed fixing something else. Maybe they contribute those back up. Maybe they don't. Uh, but it gives them some level of flexibility to uh, kind of carve their own path. Like I understand that most people want RHEL for free and that's, that's essentially why you would pick one of those for a long time. I was, I was, that is the way that I scaled up is I wanted, I used CentOS because it was a way for me to sharpen my RHEL skills um, for work. So I can, I'm not denigrating that. I'm just simply commenting. It's like the, we, you want a way to get updates on this thing that is an enterprise class software, mm -hmm. but you don't want to pay the support fees that, that the company is asking for. So, so the question I ask myself is who is the target audience for clones? Who, who wants, who wants that? And when Mike McGrath was on here, he said that they don't see much money starting with a clone and converting to rel. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, that tracks with what I see. Rarely, if ever, have I ever seen a company, I'm thinking universities here, that comes top of mind for me. Gosh, we have this project and we bought the server and we bought the software that we want to run on it and it requires RHEL, but uh, oh, you know what? We don't have 170 bucks for a license. So instead, what we'll do is we'll go download CentOS off the internet and we'll put it on there. And then once we get it dialed in and we prove that it works, then we'll call Red Hat and we'll convert that over to a, buy a subscription, then convert it. I agree that that doesn't happen. I don't think anybody's doing that. But... I, and the reason for that is, the reason for that is because 
people when when projects come to light they budget for the license when they're budgeting for the server and when they decided to buy the software in the first place so it's it any sort of planned project isn't going to fall there and i, I agree with them there and so by that metric i'm sure it's a rounding error at red hat for the amount of money that they take in from from anything else so i'll say that up front however where i think there's perhaps maybe a bit of a blind spot I absolutely believe, and I have seen this firsthand, that an IT guy goes and grabs a spare server that isn't being used for something and throws the distro of least resistance on there and sets something up to show his boss or demonstrates how it solves a problem. And now, now that they have something that works and is demonstrable, they use that to ask for the budget so that they can roll the project. Now, from Red Hat's perspective, they're never going to see that as a conversion. It's just from their perspective, it's just a customer looking to buy. The first time they heard from that person, the first time they even knew of their existence was when they showed up at their front door and said, hey, we have this project. We want to, you know, in, in our case, they wanted to spend $23,000 on a server. They wanted to buy a, a licensed copy of Red Hat, and they wanted to put, in our case, chemical engineering software on it. But the reason that that happens, the reason that the IT guy grabs the server off the rack and throws a distro on there is because it's the path of least resistance. And so if we kind of take a 30,000 foot view and look at the landscape, if Rocky's able to pull off what Rocky thinks that they're going to be able to pull off, that is to say they're going to pull binders from cloud images and they're going to keep it bug for bug compatible with RHEL, then they're top dog in this category, right? Because they have the ability to build exactly what will be RHEL and you can run it on Rocky and then when you need the support, if you need the support, when you want it to become a production box, you buy the rail license, you install rail, you're good. Seuss has a hard fork of rail. So a hard fork of rail means they're not going to track rail anymore. So they're kind of off in their own land. Oracle, <laughs> Oracle is, um, <clears throat> well, they're off fighting to keep Linux free and open from anti-GPL evildoers or something like that. And now Alma says they're not going to be bug for bug compatible. Instead, they're going to build from stream and they're going to work on ABI compatibility. So I think what we ultimately wind up with is VPS providers want an image that they can just spit out when somebody asks for it. The streaming service at our church ships us a custom box that we are to feed an SDI input into and it does whatever it does and gets the stream out to the internet. When I plugged a monitor into that box, what I learned was that box is pre-installed with CentOS. We just completed migrating all of our servers into our own data center. That was a huge undertaking. It was like a year and a half in the making. And now we have everything on our own hardware and all the rest of it. And ultimately we decided to go with Ubuntu on the host because we needed ZFS. But if we weren't using ZFS, and the original plan called for a separate ZFS box and separate virtual hosts. We ended up with plan B for a variety of reasons that I won't get into here, but the V host would have absolutely had rel on it. And I would have absolutely paid for a Red Hat license because when it breaks, I want somebody to call. I want somebody that has my back and Red Hat has done that for years. But in all of these examples that I've just outlined for you, either they were buying the Red Hat license or they weren't, it's not changing. And this change with Red Hat isn't going to impact this, I don't think, at all. Universities and large organizations are still going to want the support that Red Hat offers. And again, they were always buying it. They will continue. And frankly, some people just tie legitimate as to there has to be a cost. And if it's free, then they just kind of see it as off the Internet. And so what I'm getting at here is you're quickly having two worlds emerge. One is the corporate world that generates all of the revenue that Red Hat says it does. And those customers have been and will continue to always be Red Hat. Their world really doesn't change much. But over here in community land, it's an interesting lay of the land because what's going to happen is you have an entire group of people. And if Red Hat doesn't find value in it, it's fine. But there are entire groups of people that aren't going to pay for a Red Hat license, but absolutely want an enterprise grade software. And it might be because they're planning on going to rel. It might be because they plan to run it forever. It's probably safe to say they weren't buying a Red Hat license anyway, but they absolutely exist. And it's a void that the market can fill. So who is going to fill it and how? And I think what's happening with Alma Linux 
is interesting because Alma is tied to TuxCare. So they have a support model. So you, you're the IT guy. You grab the server off the rack. The path of least resistance is not sent off stream because it tracks ahead of rel. And so if it works and you go to rel, there's potentially a difference. They tell us that there's not, but there's potentially a difference. If you're going the route of Alma Linux, or you can go the route of Red Hat Developer. I should throw that out there, right? So you can get actual RHEL for free, but 16 licenses, if that matters to you, you have to maintain an account, you have to sign in to get updates, all the things. So we've, we've, it's possible, but the threshold is higher. There's a higher threshold. There's a higher friction level. Then you look over at Alma, download it right off their site, install it, set it up, use it, try it, run it. It works. You want support. Okay, it's not going to be bug for bug compatible with RHEL, but A, if it is ABI compliant, so far as I understand Steve's explanation, it means that you'll be able to take software and run it on RHEL and it should be fine. But even if you don't, you can just leave it right there on Ulma and they've got TuxCare to offer you support. Now you look over at what Rocky's doing. Very similar situation. Now they're going to try this. It'll be interesting to see if they're able to do what they say they'll be able to do. But let's just say for the sake of argument, they can they have their product and whether they can or can't they're still tied to ciq so there's still an escalation path for support there so what's happened is this audience this wide audience of people that have the, that have a need to use an enterprise operating system have almost more choices than they ever have and what i hope happens is eventually a standard for the community emerges of hey here's what enterprise ready means in the community or I guess you could call it kind of like a a 1B option to Red Hat proper. It would be interesting if that popped up because it would give something like the Oracles and the Seuss's and the Ulmas and the Rockies something else to track. But very interesting news out of Ulma to track CentOS. I'm interested to see how this plays out. Anything to add to the discussion, Steve? So I think... Some of the stuff that gets lost here when I hear people talk about this is consideration for who Red Hat's target market is, Mm. right? Uh, Largely, the target market isn't the the small, medium business, well, medium maybe, but definitely not the small business. Right. Uh, Red Hat will definitely take your money and support you as best that they are able. But in terms of market segments that they are trying to target... Uh, the, <laughs> you gave the example of buying a $23,000 server, mm-hmm. right? As a, for instance, and get a license for it and all the rest of that. Uh, the scale of, so the, the people, I'll, I'll give you a little digression of the story if you'll allow me. So, uh, when I was starting out in my career, after I had finished uh, working at IMAX, I worked there three years. It was glorious. I loved it. Um, but I needed some, I needed something different because I was getting married. So I went out and worked at a financial institution and I went out there and they were all running SUS throughout, except that they weren't paying for SUS. So nothing was getting supported. And if we ever needed to install software, it was, it was go and put the CD in the drive and hope that it was on the CD sort of thing. So I started moving them over to, uh, CentOS because that was something that, I was familiar with. Um, I was a big fan of, of Red Hat in general at that time. And then the two main servers, we went and bought Red Hat licenses for. So we I conver- converted ah. them from SUSE to Red Hat via CentOS because they were able to see that, okay, the, the dev machines were getting updates and it was good because yeah. we you know, could run things and stuff like that. And that was wonderful. Except that I'm not really the target audience for... Red Hat. Right. Like they they were absolutely Again, it's a wonderful. Here. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so uh, when when people get upset, they're like, oh, well, you know, they're losing all of these people that are going to be converted because care. of. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but that gets lost in the conversation. I, I've been listening to the various coverage out there. And I think on the whole, it's been balanced. But generally speaking, the things that are getting lost are like. This is this is a business with a defined customer base that they are going after. And generally speaking, you know, 10, 20, 30 seat licenses, that's not going to really be the main target yeah. for where Red Hat's going after, which is honestly 
the target market for most of the the Almas and the Rockies or the CentOS, right? Like that's honestly where the target market is. Brent Midwood is our guest and we're talking about security today. So Brent, welcome in. I appreciate your time. Could you talk a little bit about what Red Hat Insight is and what does it offer? Yeah, so Red Hat Insights is a security uh, and performance assessment service that we run in the cloud for our customers. So it's software as a service. It's included with every Red Hat subscription. So if you have a Rails subscription, if you have uh, an OpenShift subscription, you can take advantage of Insights. And we collect telemetry from those hosts, from those clusters, and apply a knowledge base to that data. So we have an expert system that will detect whether or not you have security vulnerabilities, whether you are compliant with your regulatory policies, mm -hmm. uh, and if you have issues that might affect performance and availability. So it's, um, it's an analytic service that allows our customers to be more proactive when it comes to security, performance, or availability issues. Can you tell me a little bit about IBM X-Force and threat intelligence and how that plays into Red Hat Insights? Yep, so one of the services that we launched uh, last year was uh, a malware detection service for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and we partnered with IBM X-Force for that threat intelligence. So IBM X-Force is a group of folks within IBM that offer consulting services, uh, threat assess strategic threat assessments, uh, penetration testing, uh, and all sorts of other security services to their clients. And so joint clients um, that use both Red Hat uh, platforms and IBM threat services get a unique combination of them bringing intelligence to us and us applying that intelligence to the Linux boxes. Now, this is available for uh, any Red Hat customer. You don't have to be an, an IBM customer to use the service. Uh -huh. um, and so the idea here is to give all of our customers a layer of security around Linux malware that they can then choose to expand if they want to partner with IBM X-Force themselves. So was this available prior to the Red Hat IBM partnership or is this some of the things that that Red Hat has been able to leverage as part of the uh, as part of the merger? Yeah, so this this was actually a partnership that that we entered into with that group uh, after the acquisition of Red Hat by IBM. Um, it, it's it it's let's say convenient in that we have existing business relationships with the folks at IBM that make those types of partnerships easier for us. Um, we certainly hope to partner with other threat intelligence vendors and providers in the future to expand the portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, but IBM was a really great first step for us when we're looking at malware. Can you talk about edge computing and some of the threats associated with, uh, with edge computing? Yeah. So I think uh, edge is unique and, and yet, uh, it's sort of a, just a twist on infrastructure that we've always had out there. So for us, I think the challenges around edge revolve around things like how do I maintain a, a standard operating environment or a standard device type or image type for my particular devices and what those look like. And so security becomes an exercise in how do I do anomaly detection or how do I make sure that the images that I'm going to push out to my edge devices are secure right out of the gate and can I push uh, you know, roll back images when I need to and push them out there when I need to. So I think one of the things that, um, you know, we can help provide is a unified inventory, a set of images that we can actually run analytics against to say, like, you know, is this secure before I push it out there? And then when we collect the telemetry from those edge devices, we can say, hey, something looks different. Um, you know, this may have an issue that we have to take a look at. And how does Insights relate to SE Linux and how can those two things work together to increase security? Yeah, so obviously uh, SE Linux is built into the platform and Insights being an analytics service that connects that platform, uh, they work really well together as a multi-layered security approach. So as a for instance, we have probably two dozen rules or so that we can apply that are specific to SE Linux. So okay. like, hey, if you are configured in this specific manner and you're running SE Linux, you might have you know, a daemon that could fail or you might have a box that won't reboot uh, correctly. And so we can proactively tell you, hey, here's an issue you might have. SE Linux has traditionally been difficult for administrators to, to use to its full potential. And so one of the things that Insights brings to the table is the ability to say, hey, you know, it's easier for you to run SE Linux now. So we can help you uh, take full advantage of all the layers that you have available to you. 
As the threat, as threats continue to evolve and companies are trying to get proactive about things, this is something we're seeing more and more. Um, companies are actually mandating in some cases that, uh, that security and threat intelligence is proactive. Can you talk a little bit about how Red Hat Insights is able to accomplish being proactive or at least address the problems of, you know, they don't, the security administrator doesn't know that they need to respond to the threat until after the threat has occurred. Right. So a lot of the information that I think administrators get is around, uh, let's say, what's the version of the software that I'm running on a box? Or what are the package mm -hmm. lists that I have running on a particular box? Where insights can come in and say, uh, hey, we know what software you have running in this box, but we also know how it's configured. So we know that you have port 12345 open yeah. and you have this vulnerable version of SSH and the only way that you're really exposed is if you have those two things together, that's difficult for an administrator to figure out on their own because yeah. they got to go figure out, okay, like, you know, how do I look at all the stuff that I have configured? How do I, you know, combine that with my package lists and my inventory and everything else? Insights does all that automatically. And so essentially what we do is give you an inventory of, hey, here's what your systems looks like. Here's the potential threats to your environment. Here's what you're actually exposed to because of the configuration. And then the other nifty layer that we add on top is um, helping you prioritize what to look at. Mm -hmm. So because of the volume of alerts that you might get or the volume of issues that there might be with all the software that you have installed on your boxes, we can help say, oh, no, no, no. These are the five or six critical things that you should look at and the five or six critical things that you're actually misconfigured on. Go fix those things first mm -hmm. and then figure out the laundry list of the rest of the stuff that you have. How does open source play into Insights? So is the technology available for anybody to run? Is it only available through Red Hat as a service? How does all that work? So yeah, absolutely. All of the, let's call it plumbing, like the Insights client itself, that's part of the, uh, the operating system. So all okay. that uh, code is open sourced. Um, the rules themselves are available for Red Hat customers. So that's the part where the value add of, of partnering with Red Hat as part of your subscription mm -hmm. is that we've essentially productized the knowledge base and productized the knowledge that our support engineers have yeah. to apply that to the host themselves. So all of the plumbing there, absolutely open source. You can take a look at how, uh, you know, how the rules are applied. We actually use Ansible under the covers to apply the remediations and all that sort of good stuff. Okay. Um, and then the, the rules themselves are what's the, it's the magic sauce that makes the whole thing go. Does Insights, so you talk, you spoke about providing the remediations. Do I understand then that Insights is actually able to go and resolve those problems once they're detected? And can that happen proactively? Yes. Yeah, so traditionally, when we first started, we had a sort of an operating rule amongst ourselves that we were only going to create Insights rules that you could remediate. Okay. With. So in other words, like it doesn't do an administrator a lot of good to say, hey, uh, you're misconfigured here. Your box might fall over in a week. Good luck. So what we, what we want to be able to do is provide them an Ansible playbook that says, okay, we can fix that misconfiguration issue and your box is not going to fall over. So proactively give you visibility into an issue uh -huh. and then give you a playbook that you can either download and examine yourself uh, and then figure out how to run it on your own or you could send it to an Ansible controller and run it that way. Or you can actually apply those fixes via things like Red Hat Satellite or directly via the, uh, the Insights client. So there's multiple different ways for you to resolve the issues after they're found. Does Red Hat Insights have a way to decrease the time between the time that a threat occurs and the time that an administrator is able to provide resolution to that threat? Are there things that Insight can do to, to decrease that time? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the major value props of Insights is that there's no work for the administrator to have to go out and do manual searching. So the the agent runs on a you know default schedule of every day. So you wake up in the morning, you take a look at the alerts that you have. Mm -hmm. And if you have findings that you otherwise would have had to manually go search for, like, hey, I, I read that there was a new CVE that, uh, that's been discovered. I have to go figure out how to find it. I have mm -hmm. to go apply that knowledge and then figure out how to resolve it. We've already found it for you. Um, we're going to tell you if there's an errata that you can apply to take care of it or if there's other configuration actions that you need to take care of it. So it's automating uh, sort of the search and discovery part of it and then providing, if you so choose, an easy way to take care of those things. I think a little bit about the advocacy of security and what things 
is Red Hat doing or Insights doing to help advocate for securities, to have PMs and directors of engineering um, who take the stance that eh, security isn't really important, like when something comes up, we'll address it, right. rather than this proactive approach that, that Red Hat seems to be taking of let's stay on top of things, let's evaluate things, find out where the threat vectors are before we're compromised, and then address those problems head on. Right. One of those challenges that we have when it comes to security is that it's something that we don't really worry about until something has gone wrong. Already. Yeah. And so the, the challenge is to get those engineers and those product managers and developers to think about security upfront and proactively and incentivize them to build secure systems and design secure systems right out of the gate. And if we can get over the, the sort of the difficulty and the challenges that go with that by doing things like developing a trusted supply chain for software developers or attaching insights to build systems so that you can manage security and vulnerabilities all the way from the entire life cycle from uh, you know stage through testing through deployment yeah. then all of a sudden you start to change the culture and you start to get those product managers and developers thinking oh okay like security isn't difficult it's not something that I'm just going to react to yeah. later on and they can start to apply those fixes earlier beyond security what does red hat insights offer so uh, two of the biggest value props that we've actually uh, delivered to our customer is uh, detecting availability issues. Okay. So obviously uh, uptime is, is a huge concern for any enterprise business that wants their applications running. Mm -hmm. And so insights can provide visibility into things that would cause downtime for a box. Um, whether that's, hey, I have something that's got a leak in it and there's going to be a memory issue and the box is just going to go down. Or even providing things like, uh, when it relates to remediations, mm -hmm. you want to know if when you apply a fix that you're going to have to reboot the box afterwards, because yeah. then maybe you don't have to bring that thing down during business hours. You uh -huh. schedule your fixes for the weekend or for off hours when that might be. So we definitely provide uh, some availability benefits there. And then there's also performance benefits. So mm -hmm. whether that's a business performance benefit like cost management, we have a cost management service that allows visibility into uh, your public cloud spend or even your on-premise spend, if you give it a cost model, you can understand how to optimize the resources that you have so that you don't run into things like an empty cluster problem or you don't run into a host that uh, isn't being used or it's the wrong size VM or whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. You can actually apply our service to that and say, hey, here's some boxes that you might want to take a look at and figure out how to right size those uh, and take advantage of all the infrastructure that you have. Brent Mid Midwood, uh, our guest, appreciate the time, sir. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thanks. Appreciate it. I think Redhead Insights is one of those things, Steve, that is not talked about nearly enough for uh, the service it provides. And I've had an opportunity to bump into it from time to time with clients. And it really is a terrific thing that I, I think if Red Hat has a mistake there, it's just that they don't market it enough. Yeah, it is kind of a hidden gem. I, and I don't just say that because I work at Red Hat. I've seen what kind of, well, insights it can provide. Ha, if you'll I see what you did the pun. Uh, I I really do find it useful for, especially for the clients. Not everybody turns it on, right? People block it, and they don't want the kind of cloud analytics sort of stuff. But for the clients that do have it, it definitely can be uh, good in terms of helping you get ahead of things that you might have kind of lost track mm -hmm. of. Or for me, it's doing the stuff I don't have time to do. Yeah. Yep. So, and the ability to to deploy automations and remediations with nothing more than Ansible is fantastic because it means it's instantly available on every machine without having to, to do anything, make any modifications to the machine. Hey, the music in our ears, you know what it means. It means we're out of time. We appreciate you joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. You can check the show out live. Ask your questions. The show notes are available at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But if you want to keep up with the latest, I invite you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday with another live edition of Ask Noah Show. 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>